Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, the podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. This episode brings the saga of Grace of Kings to an end with the second part of my discussion with A. Fishtrap and author Ken Liu. In this episode, gods, technology, wonder, and also the structure of the novel. Also, I'm very pleased to welcome a new reviewer. Brandon O'Brien begins an every other month reviewing series by discussing Kaya Shante Wilson's A Taste of Honey. We'll begin the episode with a passage I had difficulty with from the very beginning, late in Grace of Kings, when Cooney has established a court in exile. His aide Kogo calls people to demonstrate their inventions and seek the king's patronage. The majority of these promise some technological innovation and find a receptive audience, but there's one exception at the end. And then also there is someone who comes and says, I can understand the gods and I can gain the great the, the visions of the gods and, and, and sort of figure out fate and fortune. And that person basically gets the brush off. They say, Okay, thanks, we'll we'll let you stay here tonight and then we'll we'll write a letter of introduction and send you over to Mata's To Mata of all people, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> and I am used to reading, so I don't read even even very much steampunk, which means that to me, the, the, I, I don't read very many books in which technological developments actually happen in the in the fantasy tradition. And I'm like, well, you know, I mean, people start out with swords and riding horses, and they end up with swords and riding horses and crossbows and things. And also, I'm used to a tradition of gods where if they're present, they are present and active and changing things and it's the Greek gods who were there like riding the chariots along with the heroes and things. And so I'm like, hey Which which if you recall the gods did supposedly in the in an earlier time in Dara's history. There are references to how in the in the ancient heroic epics that is literally what the gods did. And and they had to make a compact not to do that anymore. But even within Grace of Kings you've got things like Mata having to sacrifice the entire fleet in order to get off the island. Right. Although, although the way it's, it's portrayed, he was tricked. Uh, it, it, it does not appear that, uh, that Tazu was dealing with him in good faith. Uh, at least that is the, that is the, um, one interpretation. Yes. Yes. It, it, there's definitely a level of, of ambiguity. Um, but. Okay, I'm not sure if you can hear the thought process in my head, but the difficulty with interviewing authors about their own work is that I didn't read that scene with Tazu as ambiguous. Possibly because I was looking for divine intervention, I found it, and in this moment you can hear me, or maybe you can't hear me, hopefully you can't hear me, realizing that my reading differed from the author's, and <laughs> no matter how much I may or may not believe in authorial intent, I wasn't prepared to pursue that different reading with Ken. I mentioned this partly because I just flubbed the different readings during the interview, and one benefit of later edits is I can try to fix things and say, I think that our readings were different. But also, many of our discussions in the episode centered around divine intervention and how and when readers see gods acting in the world, and I would extend that a little bit to how and when people see god or fortune or something similar acting in the world, and I wish I'd had a chance to go back and explore the stories how the stories we tell ourselves influence whether we see God or magic and the stories that we read. But instead, the conversation took a turn away from that and back to my expectations about how technology changes or doesn't in the process of fantasy novels. I can tell you what tradition I was playing with and why I did it that way. So yeah. um, one of the really, really fascinating things about traditional old, very old Chinese historical romances is that they feature these 
amazing characters、um, who are awesome、uh, because they're great engineers. And, yes, I and, knew it. I knew it. I told you so, Jonah. <laughs> and、Go、yet,、ahead. at the same time, the way their technological prowess is described in the romances, it makes them seem like they're actually wizards. So Zhuge Liang is is sort of the the the, the prime example of this, but but there are similar characters in almost every historical romance. But Zhuge Liang is this great engineer, really. He's 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 treated as a great strategist. But if you look at how he's described in Romance of the Three Kingdoms, he is the one who invents these mechanical creatures that help the、uh, the kingdom carry provisions back and forth between the、uh, the homeland and the、uh, and, and the front. Help provisioning soldiers. He is the one who invents the rapid-firing auto crossbow, giving the soldiers of of the kingdom an advantage. He is the one who accurately predicts the weather, or perhaps, depending on how you read it, changes the weather so that at the Battle of the Red Cliffs,、uh, he is able to to lead the army to a great victory against an enemy. He is consistently、uh, portrayed as someone who has a lot of practical knowledge and who is very clever and who is able to invent. New technologies, both for military and for domestic use, to benefit the army as well as the lives of the people.、Um, but part of it is also he has—he seems to have this ability to talk to the gods in some way. You know, by by changing the weather, by by carrying his message to to the heavens. And there's even a scene in *Rise of the Three Kingdoms* where he performs a ceremony to try to extend his own life because he knows that he's going to die and he hasn't finished his task of serving. The dynasty that he's serving loyally, and he wants to extend his life, and and because of an accident, the ritual fails, and so he he doesn't get to extend his life,、uh, and and so the question is, you know, is this because the gods are saying that the the lord he serves is not intended to win, or is it just you know an accident where 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 people strive to do the best, but sometimes the best is not good enough, you know, it's it's ambiguous. So the Grace of Kings has a similar sort of、um, attitude towards technology and the role of the gods. In that, technology is is viewed as as a very very important human endeavor. It's as just as important and as creative as art,、uh, as music, as politics.、Uh, engineering is、uh, is poetry.、Uh, great engineers are great heroes because inventing new things and and coming up with new uses for old things. Uh, that's that's what a smart person has to do. That's how you how you invigorate a nation, how you lead a nation forward. At the same time, in terms of talking to the gods, this is something that no one really is certain actually works, right? So this is this is one of those things where in in Chinese philosophy, particularly, there's always this ambivalence towards ghosts, spirits, gods. The Confucians would say. We don't actually want to pay too much attention to gods and spirits and things like that because we really don't think we can make huge a huge difference in in the lives of the people by paying too much attention to that sort of thing. So we're going to respect them, but we're going to stay away from them. This is actually a very interesting attitude. I'm not sure how.、Uh, I, I suppose you could argue that the the, the Roman literati had a similar sort of attitude、uh, in that they believed. Perhaps the gods exist, but there's not a whole lot humans can do other than just being respectful to them because they're not going to interfere and then do a lot of good for us. It's it's much more important to focus on the practical here and now, and then do the things that we need to do, and to engage in great engineering projects,、uh, which the Romans did. So that's kind of the, the the attitude I was trying to to get across, which is 
Even the grace of kings, there's to for for Kuni to succeed. One of the things that he leaned on is this grand tradition of of inventors, of of wizard-like inventors who who tapped into the creativity of the people. It's not that Luan Zia invented everything himself. It's rather that Kogo was able to tap into the folk wisdom of the people. Right? He he puts out these incentives for inventors, and inventors come to him, and and then. And he figures out Shark Tank style、um, which particular inventions are the ones he wants to invest in, and that's the way to go. He, he's like, this is the way to build a great nation. But when somebody comes in with this idea that we're going to be able to talk to the gods better, and, and here is you know a, a great、um, technique for how to do it, somebody like Kogo or Luan will say, you know what? We're not actually going to invest a lot in this because we kind of respect the gods, but we really don't think this sort of thing works.、Um, Luanzia is actually the son of an of an augur, right? Somebody who whose job it is to do divination. And and if you recall, when he has a speech with、uh, with Kuni about this divination stuff, he says, "You know what? Honestly, nobody knows what the gods think.、Uh, and nobody tells you that that they do. They're they're lying to you. I I cannot be sure what the gods think. I just have to do what I think is right, and and that's the best I can do.、Uh, maybe the gods are there. Maybe maybe they'll do the right thing. Maybe they'll support us, and maybe they won't. I cannot guarantee any of that because nobody knows what the gods think. And I think that's kind of the the attitude、uh, that Kogo and and the rest of them sort of follow. They 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 sort of say. Gods have their own will. We can't really know what they think,、uh, and so anybody who says they have a better way of doing this, they can do it. We're not going to believe it because none of this is is real. These are likely just、uh, frauds who 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 are here to to try to make more money. We had a longer discussion here that I'm going to excerpt about the assumptions that readers bring both to historical and modern texts, and specifically the role of divine intervention. Beowulf, do the gods or the Christian god play much of a role in in, in the poem? It's, it's an open question, right? If you are、um, a very very Devout Christian, perhaps you can read the story and see that the role of God、uh, is everywhere. But you can also read it as an unbeliever and, and see that God is evoked merely as a philosophical concept and, and plays no role whatsoever. There's an interesting discussion that we didn't quite have about reading historical texts without historical assumptions. For instance, reading Beowulf or Paradise Lost without assuming the Christian God or bringing in historical assumptions. Confucians have never been particularly、uh, big believers in the idea that he, it is possible for humans to understand the gods、uh, or, or to intercede with them on our behalf, and that's kind of the attitude, sort of、uh, evincing the Grace of Kings. And of course, since Grace of Kings is secondary world fantasy and is specifically challenging and remixing some of the ideas of secondary world fantasy, the big obstacle that I mentioned earlier about ideas of technology and divine intervention came back. If you're reading fantasy, your average fantasy is either going to be like, say, Game of Thrones, where there might be gods. There seem to be some religions, but there are no gods actively walking the planet. And so, for all intents and purposes, it can pretty much be over there. But in the fantasy works where a god shows up or multiple gods show up and they do any talking. They're going to the, the the immediate setup. There is those gods are going to be playing an active role somewhere with a literal Deus ex machina. Yeah, it's in like 
absolutely literal. So to have them present in the story and then other than Tazu, you know, occasionally causing trouble, uh, for the most part, be relatively outside of the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, or or they try to affect the picture and they don't even succeed. I mean, you know, they, they go to all that trouble to send a message to the mortals and Kogo just misinterprets it and, and sort of makes it all a waste. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that that is not the way fantasy usually plays out. All of which is to say that the role of gods is complicated and unpacking the baggage of our expectations from the words on the page is something that we talked around, but that I'm looking forward to revisiting with Ken sometime in the future, although maybe over drinks rather than in another episode. For now, I'll leave you with this and your own readings, which may have differed from all of ours. I do have it set up so that it looks like the gods will do something, and then you can read the novel and and interpret it one of two ways. Either the gods' interference, small as they are, were critical, or the gods were useless and did absolutely nothing. And either interpretation is consistent with the text. Right. You mean except for the ones where I'm not even sure it was the god? Yeah, well, I left some of those too. You're like, is this a god or is this just like something that happened? Okay, with that, we are going to leave behind magic and the gods and return to technology. The technology side is so interesting because, of course, there's the theme on the on the in the European side of things, and 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 in retelling European stories of demystifying wizards. Like it turns out that Merlin is not throwing fireballs. Merlin is standing on the castle walls, and there are catapults throwing flaming rocks when Merlin brings his hands down. And that's right. Merlin is a time traveling wizard. <laughs> right, and 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 so, like, what is the technological explanation for magic? And it sounds like there's like the the notion that engineering in and of itself and technological development in and of itself could be could almost become magical. Yeah, it's it's, it's a really interesting progression and different ways of achieving wonder. Because that's right. another thing that really struck me about Grace and Kings is there were there were times and moments that were full of wonder. Yeah, the Grace of Kings in, in a lot of ways is is closer, I guess, in in, in its um uh in its character and, and in its foundational sort of sentiment to science fiction than it is, I guess, to traditional fantasy. It is an epic fantasy novel. Uh there are gods and, and creatures, but there's this fundamental sort of yearning uh by by a lot of the characters at least, that the world and the universe is knowable. Uh, and, and that's that's fundamentally a very science fictional idea. Uh, and so that's why there are large parts of it where the the mental outlook of the characters and, and the way the, the book treats the world is, like you say, that, that kind of science fictional yearning for, for sense of wonder. And it's not necessarily uh, based on, on the supernatural, but rather on the very idea of, of humans being able to accomplish great things through the power of technology. Uh, and that is a theme that gets developed more later on in the other books. Um, that, that tends to become a more dominant note, if you will. You are now making me wonder what this book would be like if Mata had won instead of Cooney. It would be a very different <laughs> world, right? A very yeah. different world. I'm going to break here for a moment to introduce a new review feature coming to Cabbages and Kings in 2017. 
Brandon O'Brien, a poet and writer from Trinidad and Tobago, the poetry editor of Faya Literary Magazine, and whose work has been published in Uncanny Magazine, Strange Horizons, and elsewhere, is beginning a new feature, Black Star Cruises, in which he invites us on a journey through black speculative fiction, beginning with Kaya Shante Wilson's A Taste of Honey. You can follow Brandon on Twitter and Tumblr at The Rising Times. This review, and it isn't strictly speaking a review, should open with a disclaimer. There will be no stars here. The work I'm about to discuss, and every other work I discuss here, will not have a rating. I will not tell you whether you should buy it or not, or whether you should read it or not. I am not concerned with whether a work is great or whether a work is terrible. What I am concerned with is what a work is trying to do. Black speculative fiction, in that way, isn't nearly as talked about in public discourse, save by other black speculative fiction writers or fans in the know. It's talked about so little that I wear my own badge of shame. I have personally read none of the classics. The works of stalwarts like Butler and Delaney only got on my radar fairly recently as did my confidence that I could write in science fiction or fantasy at all, considering how few people looked and sounded like me in it. Me as in black, me as in Afro-Trinidadian, and other things. I didn't know they existed just like I didn't know I could exist. And then I decided I'd exist anyway, and the genre told me, yes, you've existed here before. And that means that if there is a school of established critique that says that white American and British science fiction and fantasy is of some train of thought, some pattern, if that work is trying to say something, then surely black work is trying to say something too. Both lots of very specific things and one central, vague, bigger thing about identity, about society, about time, about the body, about itself, even about the genre. And I am intrigued about what that thing might be. So this is not about whether whatever comes up is worth your money or your time. If I mention it, even if it does happen to be critically less than perfect, I'm bringing it up because I do think it's worth your money and time. It's worth your critical attention to consume more black spec fic, to dive as deeply into it as you can fathom, to explore the intricacies of its individual writers, individual works, and then zoom out into what it adds to the overall canon of black creative expression in the genre. I'm asking you to go on a journey with me, not to make a pit stop in one cool book or another. With that being said, The first landmark on that journey is Kaya Shante Wilson's A Taste of Honey. This was on my radar for quite some time. Before I even knew I would write this review, I had it in mind to read this. I long for more black, queer spec fic in my life. But what truly made me resolve to actually read it was what Wilson himself had to say about the work, and particularly, how people speak in it. I should preface by saying I haven't read Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps, and even after discovering that it's in the same world, I still wanted my first experience to be a taste of honey. And I wasn't disappointed at all. First of all, I wasn't disappointed by the love story itself between Akeb and Lucrio. 
Typically, stories of young men rejecting or hiding away their love for another man can fall into the hokey at best or the incredibly disparaging at worst. But the moments when you see Akib wanting Lucrio, actually taking agency in their romance, being aware of the politics he is balancing as a result, and acting rather than being acted upon, were actually rather heartwarming instead. This was the story of a young man genuinely coming into his sexual and romantic identity. That identity still clashes with the social order in his world, but his conflict isn't so much how he can avoid punishment for who he is. It, at least to me, was so much deeper than that, into the internal politics of how the entire family is run in the world of Olorum. Those politics are strict and confrontational regardless of who Akib loves, you eventually discover, and seeing him maneuver his pure love for Lucrio through such a landmine is genuinely endearing. And the setting is lovely. Olorum pops with life regularly, constantly busy, shaped indelibly by the hierarchy of the family in their world, and strongly aided, of course, by Wilson's language, which I have a lot to say about, so I'll get there in a bit. But especially in this case, I should specify at least that Wilson is very good at making a sentence do multiple things at once. The stage directions he gives in this story lean strongly on the socio-political setup of family politics in the world, while also giving the characters they describe purpose, action, even feeling. Even the simple interactions we see Akib have in this world are described both to remind us of the political stakes and to humanize the characters themselves, give them dimensions, even if those dimensions are also shaped by what order they take in the royal family. Plus so much more, the further political distinctions made between them and the gods, the relationship Olorum has with the other nations around them, the way that magic is thought of in this world. A Taste of Honey has sold me on the setting completely. I wish I could talk more about the use of shifting through time in the story as well, but to do so as deeply as I want would reveal a heavy spoiler or two. What I can say is that I appreciate what those shifts in time do for the story. Ask us to imagine the decisions that Akib makes in the story ahead of time, witness their consequences, and then become infinitely more curious about what led to those decisions. When you actually see what those decisions are, which I cannot spoil, that technique reveals itself as actually quite brilliant and invokes the deeper question of the sacrifices LGBT people make both for the sake of their happiness and the sake of their reputation in the world. And I can't talk about the answer to that question in the work, because spoilers. But it hit me in the gut, is what I'm saying. The language is why I came here, though, and I wasn't disappointed. I was intrigued. After the novella came out, Wilson himself wrote a blog post on Tor's website entitled The POC Guide to Writing Dialect in Fiction. It sounds like I'm making a detour, but I'm not, I swear. In it, he speaks a lot about the dialect use in both of his books, and the two inevitable pushback all writers of color face when they try to include creoles and dialects in work. In his own words, he says this, Many people won't read even gorgeously written dialect, cannot in the first place perceive the beauty in it. 
So, if you choose to write in a low prestige dialect, the already difficult road to publication and thereafter to a wide readership and to acclaim steepens. When I wrote my second novella, A Taste of Honey, I turned the flame of belletrism up high, turned the black demotic down low, in part because of the crushing discouragement and feedback I was getting during years of trying to get the Sorcerer of the Wild Deeps into print. End quote. I have a wealth of feelings about this. Even reading the book, I was hit by the jarring distinction between the language used to narrate the work and the way some of its characters speak. Full disclosure, again, I am a black writer who has made work with my own dialect in it, so that experience of editors and readers who cannot perceive the beauty in how I speak is real. Voice is a big thing in the work of people of color. Expect me to come back to voice, use of dialect, use of languages other than English and their own dialects as well, very often in this series, because the importance of literally speaking for ourselves in our work is significant. So it kinda hurt to see what is still astoundingly well-crafted prose be as ornate and beautiful as it is, only to wonder whether that language existed just to draw people into a world like this, where people speak in their own tongue. Because seeing some of these characters speak is a blessing. Again, his language in general is brilliant. I dare say brilliant in ways only someone aware of voice can accomplish, and Wilson's awareness is a direct result of his consideration of dialect. It isn't my dialect, but it's a dialect, someone's dialect. And further, it doesn't give me any comfort to know that great writers like Wilson have powerful stories like A Taste of Honey to tell, and are still discouraged by others' attitudes to language. I, for one, find his desire to soldier on in such a voice incredibly inspiring. That alone will draw me to even more of Wilson's work. As he says himself, a taste of honey is deeply, although subtly, spiced, with the way that black people speak, with blackness itself. It seasons the smallest of characters and the largest of worlds all on its own. For that alone I am grateful. But he tells a damn beautiful story through it too. So, that's the first stop we take in this journey through black speculative fiction, for now. I hope that you'll join me on the next one. Thank you, Brandon. Black Star Cruises will run every other month, trading off with Charles's short fiction reviews. If you have suggestions for where we travel in the future, you can contact Brandon directly or drop a note in the contact form and I'll pass it along. We're going to return now to Grace of Kings and the bookends and mirrors that we noticed with our discussion during our discussion with Kate Elliott. The exemplars are Mira and Lady Soto, but many others appear, and I asked Ken about those reflections. To, that that story was told at all, and I think it's important because I think that those stories are almost the ones that get left out more than any other stories of yeah. the narratives that we value and that we trumpet. And, and you know, actually the part I liked with, with Mira was that Lady Soto seemed to be the bookend. That you have Mira for whom everything seems to be on the surface. In other words, the narrative tells you right up, this is what's going on, this is her background, you know, this is what she's working through. And then you have the completely opaque one 
who is kind of performing the same sort of background expendable, but in a different household. These two acted as different facets of that same person in the background who normally would just be ignored. And I did like that part. I did think that was, in some ways, the more Mira got highlighted in terms of how she felt, the more intriguing I found Lady Soto for not getting any of that attention, yet still being in the the narrative, still very much playing a role. Yeah, I do think that they form bookends. Yep. Um, and of course, the, the whole book, I mean, not only not only do we have Kuni and Mata as as reflections of each other, but but the first half of the book and being toppling the empire, and then the second half of the book being establishing the new empire and, and Kuni and Mata. How do they how do they fall apart? I mean, I really like the the powerful image that mirrors and reflections always have, uh, you know, across cultures uh, in, in fiction of all sorts. Um, one of the things that I, I was trying to do with the Grace of Kings is to to make it right. See, see the 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 way I describe it is it's an attempt to tell a foundational Chinese myth using the tropes of 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 of, of a melding of Western and Chinese epics, uh, but as interpreted through a very particularly American lens. So, because of the way the work was conceived, is this very twisted kind of syncretic kind of melding of different traditions, I thought it would be interesting to structure the book so that there's always this idea of, of self-interrogation and self-reflection in the work. So you have the pairs of, of characters who serve as mirrors for each other and also mirrors for other characters. You also have the structure of the book set up so that there's always a reflection of, of um, of the movement of the first part and the second part. And, and, and the series is set up so that the first book reflects, uh, the third book. Um, and, and the second book acts as a, as a, as a, as a, as a twist. Um, I don't know think about Ken's outline right now. <laughs> oh my God. So. So for, for every movement up, there's a corresponding movement down. And I just, I like that symmetry of it. I, I like the way that you can structure a very massive thing in, in, in this way so that everything makes sense. Anyway, uh, that's, at least that's how it makes sense to me in my head. We'll see how it feels to people once it's on the page. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.